We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Arsenal kicked the ball into the Liverpool net nine times and still managed to crash out of the League Cup. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. We scored five goals, four penalties, and still managed to crash out of the League Cup uh, in what was certainly an entertaining affair uh, at Anfield. And I will say that if there is one thing that Arsenal has proven, it's that while we may not be able to I don't know, win football matches. We certainly understand drama and entertainment, uh, whether it is players trudging off the pitch and balling up their their shirts and getting booed and, and you know turning into WWE wrestling heels, or it is uh, scoring five goals and still failing to win a game. We definitely have the whole drama and excitement thing down. And you know what? It makes a nice change. So real quick, uh, just a little bit of housekeeping. We have uh, a first half rewatch with Clive for patrons coming up tomorrow. So that'll be exciting. That'll be Friday. Uh, And you know what? A rewatch I can actually kind of get behind because that should be a lot of fun before everything went tits up. So definitely join us for that. And our friends at The Athletic have finally uh, worked out a way that we are going to get a very special guest uh, on behalf of that organization joining us for the pod next week. So we're very excited about that. And if you'd like to join them, we have a really fun promotion we're going to be doing in November. So that's coming next week. But in the meantime, Arsenal Vision uh, is still the best way to get The Athletic. Theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. And uh, you get half off and just two fifty a month, which seems pretty good. But you know what else is good? Having a big J journalist and Arsenal supporter on the pod to discuss the game with us. Down the line, Paul will be on. But before that, the good stuff. His name is James. His last name is Benj. Benj. James Benj. And you can follow him on Twitter, at James Benj. And you can read him on football.london. And he is here on the podcast. Hello, James. 
Hello. Hello, yeah. So the last time we spoke was in sunny California. Uh, we were doing a live pod with Andrew, uh, the Arscast, in a bar, having drinks. It was all very pleasant. We gallivanted around L.A. and laughed about the state of the club. And here we are, uh, just a scant, I don't know, whatever it is, five, six months later, uh, not having any drinks, not enjoying any warm weather, but still laughing about the state of the club. So plus ça change, huh? Well... No Korean barbecue since either. I mean, for me, that's the big miss has been the Korean barbecue uh, mm. in LA. But um, yeah, it does. I, I was remembering when we did that podcast, Lauren Koscielny had um, had left the club in crisis, and I thought, well, at least when he's gone, we'll have a, a, a captain for the long haul. Um, so yeah, as you say, please, Sean. Two minutes and thirty three seconds on the clock, and we've already come to the captaincy issue. But I'm going to shove that to the back of the conversation so we can discuss some actual football because it is long overdue. James, this is a really interesting game if you love hashtag narrative. So let's start by discussing Mesut Ozil. Um, I guess he was training well or whatever the actual argument is, but he does start and he does provide a huge amount of the kind of stuff that had been missing. Possession, control, uh, final third play, the ability to advance the ball uh, from, from the back to front getting between the lines, setting up the the attacking players in positions where they can get, you know, get into hurtful spots and create goals. For you, I guess it's a two-pronged question. One, do you have any sense of why now for Ozil and how did you react to the performance? In terms of why now, it's because it's the League Cup. Uh, you know, that's the harsh reality is that, I mean, we, we joke about this, but the, the truth is that Ozil's not even a Europa League player. As far as you know, Unai Emery and the Arsenal hierarchy see him, he's a player for the the EFL Cup or kind of any other games where you just kind of need to plug a gap in the first team. I that may well have changed. Uh, that may well have changed after last night's performance because man, he was so good. And I, I know this wasn't wasn't against Liverpool's best team, but I mean, you mentioned all the, all the things that Arsenal have been lacking there, and obviously Özil brings them. But I kind of think the thing for me is. You know, you know that Özil's going to make those passes that you don't even see, and like what there were two of them in that build-up to Torreira's goal. Like, you know that he's going to keep play ticking over, that he's going to give you more of a semblance of footballing identity. Like, what I liked about Özil was it, it took a little while for him to get going, but after the first 15, 20 minutes, the, the guy was pressing, the guy was dropping back to to offer an out ball for the. For the uh, the deeper line midfielders, he I might even have attempted one or two tackles. I don't want to get carried away. I think we're all in danger of, of seeing Ozil as the Messiah again. But like, you know, the thing I uh, the sense I got was here was Ozil saying, like, okay, you say these are, this is what you want from me. This is what I need to add. I'm going to show you that I'm willing to add it. Now you need to show Arsenal fans that if I do that, you're willing to give me a proper chance. I. I kind of think we're going to see him at the weekend as well. It's amazing how mm. just playing really well against a load of kids and uh, Adam Lallana as a holding midfielder can, can change the narrative so much. But like, boy, did he do it. He, he was great. I'm, I'm not sure I thought that performance was in him. You, you can only be good against the teams you get to play against, right? Like yeah. you, you can't be good in the games you don't play. So, you know, I, I think he deserves credit for the performance in the irony. You talk about tackles. The pass he makes to Saka that leads to Martinelli's goal is from a ball recovery. You know, I mean, he, he was doing a lot of the things that he's expected to do. And, 
you know, again, if you take away what he makes, what his wage is, and and his star status, and just evaluate him as a player who got a chance in the first team, he did everything a player could be asked to do to get more chances. So then let's do this. Since you already brought up the weekend, I had a typically hysterical reaction to him being subbed off. And we can give some context statistically to how the team slumped after he was subbed off, if desired. But the fact is, in the moment, I just thought it was more absurd absurd bias by Emery, both against the player and against leaning into attacking football. Having said that, you know, there was some suggestion that this was actually a planned change and that it may, in fact, be a harbinger of him being in the team on Saturday. And that would obviously give me a very different perspective on that substitution. So what was your take on that substitution? And do you have any either information or intuition about whether it was, in fact, planned and whether it is with an eye towards the weekend? So it was planned. Um, it, it was it was one of the, when I say it was planned, it was sort of one of the options. And I think almost the better he played, the more likely he was to come off because then the more willing Arsenal were to um, to have a look at him on, on on Saturday. So I don't I don't want to say whether he'll start, but I think there's quite a strong uh, sense now that he's going to be in the squad and make and make some sort of contribution. I also. I was quite surprised, you know, kind of at the game, it was one of the moments where I wasn't really looking at Twitter. I was kind of focusing on the pieces I needed to write. And then I kind of didn't really see till post-match just how frustrated people were because, you know, whilst whilst Arsenal at the time they needed another goal, I, I just thought they also just needed a bit more balance and a bit more surety in, in midfield. And I thought Gwen Doozy was going to provide that it didn't work out, but like, I don't think it was a sort of mad change that you know only a manager that doesn't have a clue what he's doing would would do. You know, there, there's a logic that you know if we just have someone who's a bit more capable of building from deep. Now that we're under the cosh of it, we've got someone that can release these forwards, can release Martinelli and and Saka. It didn't, it did not work out at all. But that mm. doesn't necessarily mm. mean like that it was the worst idea. I thought it was much much stranger to take off Torreira. Who was absolutely fantastic and kind of just needed needs minutes in his legs and I mean he was the, he was the for me even ahead of Urzel I think he was the best midfielder on the on the pitch last night not that Urzel wasn't fantastic um, but yeah I, I I think we I think there's so many moments where it, it's kind of right to rush to judgment on Emery but I think in this instance let's just let's see what he does on on Saturday and if Urzel starts. Okay, I think I think maybe that was the right call. Yeah, I, you know, the problem for me, James, is you make the point, what we really needed there was some surety. I mean, yes, there are a lot of teams, James, that when they're one goal up, the move is to consolidate. But mm. Emery has all the evidence necessary to know that that's not what this arsenal is good at. And, you know, yeah. you can't draw a game 5-5 if you score seven goals. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but we were hurting them every time we got the ball forward. We had created more XG in the time Ozo was on the pitch. I, I'm not sure if you're an acolyte of the expected goals yeah. metric, but we had created more XG than we had in two years. And when he came off, Almost nothing. And I think the fact is we started playing the ball in the positions Liverpool want you to play the ball, and we stopped playing the ball in positions where they don't. Mesut Ozil had the most passes in the side in 64 minutes, and he passed it 94.4%. What does that tell me? That tells me we were were getting the ball into advanced positions and holding it and keeping it and not losing it and extending possessions and extending our period of dominance and keeping Liverpool in the part of the pitch where they don't want to play. 
And when he came off, we stopped doing that. And you could understand a manager making that choice if it weren't for the fact that he's got so much damn experience with this team doing exactly that, whether it was against Watford or against Crystal Palace or any of the number of games. The Chelsea game, his second game in charge. 2-2 at halftime. We'd been battering them. What does he do? He closes up shop and the team capitulates late. So I just think it is a decision. And you can be pre-planned with an idea and then realize, well, shit, this guy's going crazy. He's playing brilliantly. I'm not doing that change. I'm changing my mind. I think there's a lot of Emery on display there. A tendency towards conservatism that has hurt him. I agree with you about Torreira. So, you know, if you bring that up, you thought he was brilliant. I thought he was quite good as well. Um, You know, to me, it's hard not to look at this from the outside looking in and say he took off the two players that he just doesn't particularly care for. Uh, Torreira was able to play in central midfield and yet still get forward to score a goal, showing that he can kind of balance those responsibilities. Admittedly, we conceded five, but but, uh, not while he was on the pitch, to be fair. So, what do you see as Torreira's role? I mean, every time he's given a chance in the Cups to play a more comfortable, natural position for him, I think he's excelled, but that's not a role that Emery seems to see for him in the league. I, I remember quite early on this season, I was convinced that Torreira playing high at the pitch was work and was the right idea for him. I think maybe that's because... Um, Last season, watching a bit more Chelsea, I was like, what are all these Chelsea fans doing turning on Sarri over Kante when there's just so much logic? And it just feels like the same issue over again. You know, Chelsea fans, Arsenal fans want Kante or Torreira sitting deep. But why would you have your best tackler winning the ball, you know, just outside your own box when you could have him winning it in the in the opposition half? The simple fact of the matter is that needs a, a really good balance and mobile team behind them. Torreira needs to feel like he can push up and tackle with no fear that, that what will come behind him is this sort of absolute chaos that is Arsenal's midfield. Um, it, it just does not work with him as a as a box-to-box ball winner right now because he's he's not got good enough players around him, um, certainly not when Xhaka plays. I don't, I don't, I don't think that Emery doesn't rate Torreira. I just think that Emery wants to do something, but is executing it very poorly, and that is to have Torreira as this mobile pressing unit who wins the ball high up the pitch, gives it to the front three, and then you make up for your lack of creativity by just getting the ball so high up the pitch you don't need to score. You know, it's what Liverpool do with with Wijnaldum and, and Henderson. But Okay, but can, can I respond to that so, for a second? Just real quick, James. Yeah, I think there's yeah. two points here. I don't think you can press at the Premier League level with one player. So if no. the idea is for Torreira to hair around tackling from the front... That has to be in concert with other players closing down angles and space, and it has to be a unified, uh, coordinated press where Torreira's tackling be- and, and his instinct for the ball becomes really valuable because it triggers a coordinated press. When Arsenal press, it is almost always one guy running around after the ball, and I don't think that's particularly effective, and we don't even really press that much. But the other point is, if you do win the ball that high up, that guy then presumably has to be able to distribute quickly and effectively from that position. And I don't know that that's Torreira's best skill. You know, you say, why would you want your best tackler behind? Because I don't know that it's always about tackling. I think the best defensive players don't have to tackle. And I think what makes Conte special and what could make Torreira special is understanding space, marking a man, following a runner, blocking lanes, you know, getting in front of the spaces where they want to attack, making sure that he's not walking back, you know, like some of our other deep-lying midfielders have been 
guilty of or getting bypassed. I don't know that being a great defensive midfielder is always about being uh, a phenomenal tackler as much as it is having instincts off the ball of where you need to be. So for me, I, I theoretically understand what you're describing, but it, I, I certainly haven't seen anything from Emery that suggests we're going to have the kind of coordinated press that would allow Terrera's skills at winning the ball to, to come to the fore. Yeah, and that's the problem. You know what it is? I, I think to an extent, a lot of that's been because the front three has really been in flux. And I think if you go and look at the, the, the games where Arsenal have actually pressed effectively and like they're few and far enough between, they, it wouldn't take you long. But I mean, even the derby this season, they did it well when Lacazette was on the pitch because Lacazette is a very good presser. Um, and it kind of, Aubameyang is not, and when he's the sort of focal point of your attack and you've got Saka and a, a new, play, you know, two new players in Saka and Pepe, it doesn't work very well. And then there's no real point in doing it. And I think, look, I know that people don't believe that Arsenal are a pressing team and they aren't from watching them. But, you know, if you talk to, I've spoken to people really high up at Arsenal about this and it's part of the philosophy. Like Emery might not be carrying it out, but like it is part of what Arsenal expect to be as a footballing team. So I kind of think that's why this Torreira experiment has happened and mm-hmm. it's not working. Um, and I think, again, I don't want to, we don't want to spend ages talking about Xhaka, but potentially not having Xhaka in the team, whether it's for a few weeks, even just for Saturday, we get to just see how Torreira settles back in in that double pivot with Guendouzi. And I mean, we're going to see basically Arsenal's best midfield or a decent chunk of it. Uh, on Saturday and I think it'll work better just um, there isn't there's method to this madness is all I'd say it's just Emery's been really really poor at, at kind of making it work across the team it just feels like he does it in patches like he's like right I'll get the attack working and then I'll I'll sort out the midfield and I kind of feel like he's still in the sorting out the midfield stage and then he'll have a look at the defense after the next international break and it's not. It's nowhere near good enough. But like, it's not. It's not being done at random. Yeah. No. I. I. I think the reality is when something's not working, there's the presumption that there's no plan. There can be a plan yeah. that just doesn't work. I think what Ooh. we are seeing with Emery though is he's definitely trying everything because I think already this season I don't think we've done the back three this season, but we've done four two three one. That four three three with the sort of flat midfielders stretched across the middle of the pitch. We've done the four diamond two, four four two the last two games. I mean whatever the plan is, it can't be a very um it can't be a very clear plan if it if you're going to be changing systems and formations so frequently. So mm-hmm. you know I, I think if you're going to ask a player like Torreira, for example, to play an unfamiliar role, you have to at least give him a system where he's playing it in routinely. This this sort of changes from game to game. Let's have a little fun though, because this was a fun game, and and while it is frustrating to crash out, I got to tell you, I enjoyed the hell out of this game, and okay. it was wonderful entertainment in a competition I don't particularly mind crashing out of. Um, you know, is it is it disappointing to score five goals and, and not go through? It is, but at least I enjoyed watching it. One of the reasons is because I just love watching this guy, Gabriel Martinelli, play football. I just think he's an absolute joy to watch. And his, his movement off the ball, his finishing, his confidence, his, his chasing around, his energy, all of it. But to me, and I know Emery has said his best position is not striker. He's, he's, out, he's a wide player. I don't see that. I see a guy who has really natural instincts as a striker, getting on the end of moves and his finishing is so assured. Um, And you saw that in his penalty as well, which was really well taken. For you, do you see a guy who maybe is a striker and as a result, instead of trying to shoehorn him in 
as a wide player in the Premier League, just keep using him as a striker in the cup games. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think in Emery's defence, I think what he said was that Martinelli sees himself uh, as a wide player, which ah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to say, that, you know, I'm thinking Arsenal goal-scoring strikers who saw themselves as wide players. Um, and there, there was a French guy, right? <laughs> yeah, there was a French guy. He was quite good at it. He played, <laughs> played off the left, didn't quite believe he could be a centre-forward. Like, you know, for me, it was... Um, was it his second goal was the one where the ball was just kind of bouncing around their goalkeeper made a bit of a mess and he was just there. And you know, like that's that center forward instincts. That, isn't it? That's just like, I think the ball, you know, I'm going to gamble that the ball might drop to me and 99 times out of a hundred, it won't. But if it is, I'm going to be there and I'm going to batter it into the net. And like that, you can't teach that, you know, you, that's the sort of thing that, you might even argue that Lacazette doesn't quite have that like Martinelli does. Martinelli just thinks, if I get in this spot, the ball might well come here and I might well get to hit it. He is brilliant. There's also the fact that, like, man, at the other end, he's this mental whirling dervish who will run himself to the ground, will press anybody and just annoy the hell out of defenders. Like, I don't know how many times Liverpool players by the end were just like, you're getting on my nerves now. I'm going to have to kick you. Mm. Um, it was like, right. I mean, he was absolutely battered by them just because he, he was so incredibly annoying. It was like when Ganduzi broke into the team last season too when he got yeah. kicked quite a bit. When these young players come in and they have that precocious talent, they get kicked a lot. <laughs> yeah, mate, mate. Kick it out of them. That's that's the English way. Um, just, he's, yeah. he's just, he's he's just an absolute, he's an absolute joy to watch and, I mean, I almost, I almost think. Do I want to kind of? I mean, you don't want to rest the Bamiang or rest Lacazette, but I want to see how he gets on at the Premier League level. Like, it's it would be the this the silver lining if anything were to happen to Bamiang and Lacazette would be like, I'd really like to see how Martinelli gets. To, on to be fair though, the, you could start him at centre forward in every remaining Europa League group game and the FA Cup games in January, and arguably the early stage Europa League knockouts, and there's still a lot of football for him to play there without having to have the white-hot spotlight of the Premier League on him replacing a guy like Aubameyang, which, you know, I, I think with the kindest of intentions towards Martinelli, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. Um, and, and it gives him a chance to flourish in a position where we want him to succeed, and I think it saves him from what we've done, unfortunately, to a lot of young players, and you, you've seen the impact it had on Maitland-Niles to some extent and his confidence having to play right back and right wing back for so long. You're not playing him out wide where, you know, in a slightly dysfunctional Premier League team where the fans have been on the back of the players and things like that. You give him, you know, you give him the space to, to develop, and, and I, I think that's brilliant. I, I don't know. I do you, do you think that's enough football for him if he just gets in, integrated that way? Probably, yeah, I think so. I mean, and I don't see any reason why until you get to the quarters or the semis of the Europa League, why you wouldn't at least make sure that Martinelli's, you know, even if maybe towards the, the latter stages of that knockout competition, you're saying, OK, well, we'll play you out wide a bit um, just so you're still getting game time. I'm inclined to say, it's, I mean, it's definitely the best thing for him. You look at what's happening with Nketiah and it's clear that you can go on loan, you can play really well and still... Because you're not you're not ultimately the club's player, you're not a priority to develop. And like you know, Leeds Leeds have, have had to sign away an awful lot to uh, to be given a year of Enketia, and still they're like, well, we need to play Bamford. Like, best thing for Martinelli is he keeps playing in these cup games, and he'll get time off the bench. I mean, it's always a funny one because you you look back at Enketia when he first scored those goals against Norwich. He then started getting minutes, you know, sort of these 
last throw of the dice minutes in the Premier League and he couldn't do anything. But actually, I wonder if it was quite good for him just to learn playing in those scenarios and to learn how tough it is to, for the ball to suddenly be thrown your way and for the, you know Wenger and then uh, Emery to say, uh, Eddie, look, we need anyone to score a goal. On you go, mate. Get us a goal. I think it, it, I'm sure Martinelli will, might well have the same sort of reaction to that as Nketiah and he may well not come on and score five goals and, and become Arsenal's next super sub. I suspect that won't happen, but it's good to learn that stuff. It's, it's good to just be on the bench and to be that sort of break glass in case of emergency situ- solution. And and then when it doesn't pay off, you, you learn more from it every time. I think right now he's in a really good spot to develop. And actually, for all that we don't give Emery credit, he's he's you know he's shown with Martinelli and and all the other youngsters that he'll he'll keep playing them through through rough spots. I thought the same was was true of Maitland Niles last night, and Maitland Niles then rewarded Emery with a really good performance, like six days after he had to get hauled off at half time because he was playing dreadfully. Maitland Niles comes on and puts in a really good performance on the right wing, like. It's a thing to give Emery credit for, and I know you are not in the mood to give much credit to Emery, but mm. I do well, think he's had the youngsters as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that's so tough, right? Because, like, ultimately the best thing for young players is to get some playing time, of course, but also, like, get some playing time in a competent side that is going through a good mm. run and has a clear identity and philosophy, and so they learn, you know, good habits and they feel good in the team, like if there's basically a dressing room revolt going on and the fans are turning on you and the team is playing a different system every week, yes, you can be getting game time, but it's not always in your best interest. So the other thing that is tough for me, and again, I'm not just finding intellectual arguments to not give Emery credit. I'm not trying to do that. (laughs) I just wonder to what extent the directive to play youth is something that Emery felt very passionately about or that the club basically made clear to him and not just by talking to him about it, but by literally selling everybody else. You know, I mean, you get rid of Mkhitaryan, you get rid of Alex Awobi, you know, you get rid of Lick Steiner, you get rid of all these players, Jenkins and so on. Inevitably, there's going to be room for the youngsters because there's no one else to play. So all things being equal, though, it has worked out. And I, I, I mean, worked out to the extent that we are getting a lot of meaningful minutes for a lot of players that we want to develop. One of the players getting some meaningful minutes who we have developed in the past and would like to see develop again is Hector Bellerin. I know you have a lot of time for Hector. Big fan of his, as am I. I'm currently wearing his shirt. Uh, the shirt he wore last night, in fact. And uh, apart from the fact that he looks great in it, I thought this was a game where he looked more like Hector Bellerin. How do you feel about his return from injury and maybe this performance being the first real glimmer of, quote, old Hector, so to speak? Yeah, I really, really liked what he did. It's very, again, it's weird to be praising defenders in a defence that's let, let in five goals. <laughs> Fair but, point. <laughs> uh, I thought he did quite, I mean, it was, no, it was noticeable that Origi kind of switched from being a left winger early on to to playing through the middle because he just was getting nothing out of Bellerin. And I mean, let's be honest. He took the ball off Oxlade Chamberlain's foot too once driving right at him, which is not not easy to do. Yeah, and is also a good way to ingratiate yourself with Arsenal fans. Actually, Quickly, before we talk about Bellerin, I, I mentioned this on Twitter as well, but there's been some weird like pearl-clutching about the idea that Arsenal fans shouldn't boo Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Why? The player <laughs> who literally phoned it in at Anfield days before he joined. And, you know, I've got a lot of time for, for Ox, uh, the player, you know, both for England and, I, you know, he did some good stuff for Arsenal, but... Why if can't we? Why can't we boo any player wearing another shirt? Like I don't, I don't understand the problem there. It's not 
it's not something that Ox will be like, I can't believe they did that to me. That hurts me deep down. You know, and to be honest, I think, you know, Arsenal fans would do that to some players who, who left in good circumstances, if the context was right, you know, if, uh, you know, like it's not, it's not malice to Oxley Chamberlain. I think in the end, most people would agree that it was best for him and Arsenal that, that they parted ways and, he, he's gone on and maybe I mean we can I don't want to debate whether he's better or not he's not better that much better now than he was at Arsenal but let come on I know this whole Xhaka situation has prompted us to reassess everything about being a fan but like you're allowed to boo the opposition that's fine yeah like, yeah you're supposed to as it turns exactly. out like that's literally the job yeah <laughs> um anyway back to Bellerin I thought his performance was good I, you still can tell there's another gear to go. He's not he's not quite got the full pace back. Uh, defensively, he looks really solid though, uh, as good as he did a lot before he got injured. For me, it was it was about the leadership though. I mean, man, what a what a man Arsenal have on their hands. And I, 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 te- I te- he hasn't texted me back, but I texted someone who knows him quite well and just said, I can't believe what this guy is like. It's, you know, things like the little things, giving your jacket to the mascot. It's it's Arsenal. It's the sort of things that we need to see Arsenal players do. I mean, I tweeted about it as well that there was a moment after the third goal when Ozil just kind of, I don't know why, just made his way back. He wanted to be separate from the celebrations and he made his way back to halfway as all the other players were celebrating. Um, and Bellerin was straight over, geeing him up and saying, you know, come on, mate, uh, I don't know. What, I, I don't know any more than that. What he was saying, but it obviously seemed to have an impact. Um, and it's great to see a captain do that. I know he did the same with Mustafi. Uh, he was keeping an eye on Joe Willock. I think there was a moment when Willock went down injured, and Bellerin was sort of straight over as the enforcer, getting the Liverpool players away from him. Mm. Um, and then even right through to the end, and sort of stepping up and taking the first penalty in a shootout. I don't think many right backs uh, take the first penalties in shootouts in the cop. I thought it just like he just sets the tone for everything that's right uh, on the pitch and off it about Arsenal. He's and, and you know what? Sometimes it feels performative. Like with John Terry, who is a huge yeah. See You Next Tuesday, it always felt performative and about him. With with Bellerin, I think it's because he's just a really good dude. Like, he's just a great guy. You know, it's it's very much who he is. Yeah. I mean, and, and don't, like, this is a guy that has genuinely, like, genuinely cares about Arsenal and could have gone, and sometimes he might have wanted to, but other times he's, He's rejected the chance to go to bigger clubs where he would have been paid more. I mean, I know for a fact that Emery tried to sign him when he was PSG manager and uh, Bellerin said, uh, no, thanks. Uh, I'm going to stay at Arsenal, which I think a lot of Arsenal fans put in that position. You know, would you want like to go and compete for the Champions League and play with Neymar and Mbappe, or would you like to stay here with, uh, you know, Ainsley and keep an eye on Ainsley Maitland? The irony is, the single biggest reason you might have wanted to leave is because you don't want to be coached by Unai Emery. <laughs> True. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that for yeah. too much longer. Just like, kidding. Just um, kidding. Um, yeah. Well. All right. So look, Hector's the greatest, and we're happy about that. But I, I do think that this was a performance that suggests that a return to the Premier League squad could be closer. Do you think that's jumping? too quickly um considering chambers didn't travel at all my thoughts were that he probably won't play against we won't start against wolves but i think he will against leicester um i think you've got that saturday thursday gap or is no saturday wednesday isn't it i'm so yeah the portugal trip has, has completely confused me but the saturday wednesday gap i think might 
give enough time for Emery to to play some players twice. So I think we might see Chambers against um, against both Wolves and Vittoria and then Bellerin comes back in against Leicester and like man, Arsenal are going to need him for that game. Yeah. Going to need Bellerin. Yeah, going to need both, going to need uh, Bellerin and Tierney. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people whose very last bit of, of hope that Emery can get it turned around has been down to the idea that when Tierney and Bellerin start together, we'll start to see the team clicking and, you know, we're, we've got to be getting close to seeing that at some point. Um, so, look, I, I think that it was it was a fun game. Uh, there was a lot to like about this game. I'm curious to get your thoughts on Rob Holding, because obviously, like, Louise and Socrates are not impressing. There's been a lot of excitement for Holding coming back and potentially replacing whichever one of those two guys you like least. For me, that's probably Socrates, but, you know, pick pick a number. doesn't matter. Uh but I think that Holding showed that there's still some things that aren't there for him yet. Some of his positioning and some of his tracking wasn't quite right. Uh, there was one of the goals where he got sucked kind of deep, a little bit too close to Martinez. I can't remember which goal it was. It might have been Origi's uh, fifth goal, actually. I, I, There were so many goals, it's hard to keep them all straight. But uh, how did you feel about Holding's performance and, and whether he's close to making an argument for replacing one of the two starting center backs? Um. I thought he was quite good. I, I didn't spot any major errors. I, I, you're right. As the goal started piling up, he was a bit more disorganized. Uh, I do think part of that is it, it's just really tough to keep your head with the cop behind you and, you know, Liverpool throwing wave after wave of attacks at you and you're just doing what you can to, to get rid of. I've got sympathy with both him and, and Mustafi and, that, you know, for the 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 later errors and the later difficulties they had um i think he is ready i don't know if he again i don't know if he'll start on on saturday but i just i look at him and he's just still the most reliable of all the center backs emery's got to to play around with there he you know you can kind of look away when he's in possession and the ball will just get safely moved on to the right player. I don't really think that's true of any of them. I also think if you go back to last season when he was playing next to Socrates and Monreal was on the other side, those two worked really well together. Uh, I would probably say Louise would be the one to be dropped. I know uh, David Ornstein at The Athletic reported um, that... uh, Socrates and Holding was kind of viewed as this season's partnership. I, I spoke to some people who, who said that it's probably that is the case. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. He wasn't perfect, but I mean, he's been pretty near to perfect in every other game. I think he I'm uses kind of, the ball well. I, I'll give him that. I like I like the way he uses the ball, which has been a problem for us playing out from the back. Yeah, he's he's very very good at that. He's he's just so solid, and I just I just think. The problem with Luis and Socrates is they're both a little bit cavalier. They like to assert themselves on the attackers. You know, with Socrates, that's charging forward and uh, trying to win headers and tackles that he's not really going to make. With Luis, I haven't quite worked out what it is yet, but there's definitely something he does that I don't like. Um, I just think someone like Holding that just kind of is a bit more sensible, a bit more conservative, is really what either of those two need. And I think... Whichever one ends up being paired with holding, if indeed they, that is the starting centre-back pairing, it will just be a bit more relaxed, a bit less manic. I think that you, you, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even hesitate about bringing holding back in on Saturday. I think he's got to start. Yeah, and look, anytime a goal is scored, 
there's a presumption of an error having occurred. So yeah. you're going to look for it, right? But like Oxlade-Chamberlain's goal, there's not much you can do about a thing like that. And there's a dive to win a penalty and there's not much you can do about a thing like that. And even uh, Origi's late goal, like most players just don't finish that in that situation. I also think Martinez could have done a little better on a couple of these. And, you know, maybe Leno keeps one of those out and, and you win 5-4 and everybody's looking at the game a little differently. Um, you know, but because a goal goes in, instead of looking at the Oxlade-Chamberlain one is just brilliant, maybe you say, well, Maitland-Niles doesn't do well there. He waits for the ball to come down and he needs to attack it, which is true, but we're not talking about it if Ox doesn't, you know, leather it in from, from 20 yards out. So it's all a bit after the fact analysis regardless which is my favorite kind let's let's touch on two things real quick before we say goodbye first is just the way the game ended um i think if there's a criticism about emery that is the most consistent criticism of him that has been true prior to his arrival at arsenal and during his time at arsenal it is that deep down in his gut the kind of football he likes is safe football is compact football is counterattacking football is reactive football and that when he gets a lead, or even sometimes when he gets level, he defaults to play, wanting to play more without the ball, keep it compact, and try to counter for your chances. And in a game where we were really hurting them at every opportunity, again, created more XG than we had in two years, in a game where it looked like we could create problems every time we attacked, you know, he got a lead and he, he reverted to type. Would you say that this game was lost because Emery reverted to type and that that continues to be what ultimately may cost him his job at Arsenal? Yes, I think so. Um, Yeah, I I thought it was really evident um, against Palace on Sunday when there was no reason to panic and he just panicked. You know, Wilfred Zaha won a penalty against you. Like that happens. That happens to every team. But even 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 yesterday, you just thought, you know, I mean, as I say, I see a logic to that Ozil substitution, but you just thought, Mate, why, why don't you just play along with this? Why don't you understand that this is Arsenal? Understand the, the players you're working with and that that innate conservatism just doesn't quite fit in with Arsenal, doesn't fit in with your squad. You would be better off bringing on, off Ozil and, and putting on Pepe. Yeah. And also... We sat so deep after that, James. I mean, it, you yes. can look at periods of the play after that where we were we had eight guys in our 18-yard box. Yeah, and actually, the the truth is, against pretty much any team, the, you know, Emery goes on at length about the quality of the Premier League. What that means is, if you sit deep, almost every team in the Premier League right now, they've got the quality to punish you. If he sits deep against Wolves and Arsenal are 2-1 up, then Diogo Jota or Adama Traore, something might break their way. They might just lever the, you know, Ruben Neves or Jair Moutinho might just lever the ball from 25 yards out and it might go in. And actually, if you look at this Arsenal squad, the best form of defence is just giving it a go. And also, I mean, by the way, Unai, the problem you have with the Arsenal fans is that deep down is that they're just a bit bored. It's not even, it's not, they don't want a solid defence. I mean, well, certainly I can speak for myself. James, if every game we played was like the game we played against Liverpool, I think you'd have a lot more support, even if the outcome was the same. (laughs) I mean, I, I still think we all, we forget that, and I, I, this is not a defence of Emery, but there's a manager there that had fans thinking three months into his reign, we've got our Arsenal back because he was playing, it wasn't always, it was sometimes a bit too safe, but, you know, he was playing this energetic, explosive football that was a bit counter-attacky, but 
there was license there for players to to give it a go. And I feel like since he stopped trying to impress Arsenal or whatever for whatever reason, it's got really plodding. And I just think if I were in his position trying to sort of save this job, you kind of need to realise that Arsenal fans would rather they just want to be excited. But you know, the fans in the stadium, I think they view it as I'm spending two thousand pounds a year here. I don't want to watch rubbish football. And I think he's a smart enough man to understand what Arsenal uh, Arsenal fans have been raised on for 22 years. You've got to, it's, you know, you, you get the same thing at a club like West Ham, uh, whether or not it's, whether it's true or not, whether it really matters or not, you know, these fans expect more than just, Oh, we want you to, we want you to win games. We want Arsenal fans want Emery to play well. And he's got a squad that's capable of doing that. And he just, he can't resist it. I, and actually, I get quite annoyed with him for that reason, because I think he he knows that he can he can build a side that can play quite nice attacking football. Against Palace, there were moments, you know, even after the first two goals went in, there were moments where Arsenal played good attacking football. He'd set them out in an interesting way with that 4-4-2, with Ceballos in a free roll. I was like, okay. And then... And then the penalty happened. You know, Wilfred Zaha got into the box and and did what he does. You don't need to panic because Palace, with Gary Cahill and James Tompkins, were defending two-on-two against two of the best football strikers in world football. Like, just give it a go. You'll probably win more than you'll lose. And whatever happens, it'll be fun. The Arsenal fans will be with you. They'd rather finish fifth that way than and finish fifth just plodding out these horrible draws and boring wins and every once in a while Pepe or Aubameyang or Lacazette save you. Sorry, I know, I know I've gone off on a rant here and I'm not one of those people that wants Unai Emery sacked, you know, with my fan hat on and with my professional hat on as well. I I think he he deserves, I think he deserves slightly more thought about what he's trying to do rather than just a kind of view from the more manic fringes of Arsenal fandom of just whatever he does seems to be a reason for him to get sacked. I just well, all right, so then let me ask you a question quick, quickly. Sorry, I, I, I guess what I would ask then is, do you believe that it is at a point where he can turn it around? It feels like it reached critical mass to me. Do you think he can get it turned around? I think it's highly, highly unlikely. I don't think it's impossible. I think if he can, if he can if he's willing to, to to take the handbrake off, even if things are a bit, even if some of the results are, are at the same level as they've been, I think Arsenal fans can be won around, but I do think it's so unlikely. But there are quick, there's quick wins here. Yeah. Start playing Brazil. You know, if you if you play if he plays for the next two league games, that front four of Özil, Pepe, Aubameyang, Lacazette, Arsenal fans will be more forgiving if there's a few errors at the other end. If it's fun, yeah, I, I totally agree it's with that. Well, table, it's not that it's not the end of the world, and, and but there's it, there's certainly no statistical evidence, or in my in my mind, perform performative evidence suggesting that you know that that wasn't English, but you get the idea that the team's getting ready to turn a corner. I mean, if anything, it's going the other way, and I you know I look mm. at it and I say, all right, well. The attacking numbers are bad. The defensive numbers are bad. The the star player seems to be at odds with, or a star player seems to be at odds with the coach. And there's no consistent approach to, to how he's you know picking his team. And and 
and now the fans are, you know, sort of at war with the captain. It all just sort of feels kind of end timesy to me, if that makes sense. Like, I used the analogy in a previous podcast about chess. When you're down to the point where you've got like two pawns and a king, and the other person has like two rooks, a knight, a queen, and a bishop, you're going to lose. You know what I mean? You're just moving the pieces around until it happens. And and this feels a little like that to me. And so, James, you mentioned there's a window here. Do you wait to see if Emery can walk through it, or do you make the change before it closes? Yeah, you don't walk through windows, by the way. It, just yeah. to be clear about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. If you're in I Emery... Yeah, who knows? You're always trying to do something weird, yeah. I... Raul Senye likes Unai Emery, but Raul Senye also isn't, you know, he's not a charity case. If he doesn't think you're good enough for the job, you're gone. I think if they were to lose the next two games, I think, and this is, you know, everyone at the club says he's safe, but I think if they lost those two games, I think he would go because it's such a natural break point. And actually, I think the issue then becomes if you were to, if he were to make it, past this upcoming international break is there then it would have to get the, the, it would have to get really bad i think then because there's just so little there's so little time for rational thinking and i do think arsenal won't rush this decision sanye josh Kroenke, everyone they won't panic into making this decision i think i mean look you know i say there is a way out for him i don't see him finding it i I don't expect him to to turn this around so much that it doesn't become un- so unbearable between the fans and and the club that they just think, okay, he's got to go. Mm. We can't we can't have this whole Wenger thing happening all over again. I think that's how it ends up. I don't. I'm not. I'm just saying that there is a way that the, you know the hierarchy want him to find that way, but like it's it's you're right. It's got an end time feel to it. You know even like the the little things that you know it's, it's not statistics it's just things that happen like that that goal for socrates that was disallowed that's the sort of thing you know that's the sort of yeah, thing that, that just goes against you when when it's all that's a really good point I, I mean sometimes there's just little signs i'm not saying i believe in serendipity but like hmm. if it's a manager on the up and everything's going his way the Socrates goal is allowed to stand and he gets a key win and up onward and upward. You know, I I think the other point James for me is just that like, if we were sitting seven points outside of top four and the top four were Liverpool city, a strong Chelsea and a strong United, I might say stick with Emery to the end of the season. There's not much to be accomplished there. See what he can do in the Europa league and make a change in the summer because what is a change going to get you? You're not going to overhaul teams like that. But right now, top four is a weak Chelsea, you know, regardless of how, how their results have been, and Leicester, and the window is still open, and we're still within a distance where you should say, where you can say, Arsenal have every right to expect to still be able to finish top four. So you are playing with a very rare opportunity to finish top four when other teams like Spurs and United are down. So I just think that the, the board have to be mindful of that. I, I've been, can I ask you, can I ask yeah. you something? Uh, I, other than the, the sort of stupid Mourinho talk, I haven't really seen a convincing candidate thrown into the into the ring that fans would want to replace Emery. Who would you want? So the, the cop-out answer is, it's not my job to decide who's next, right? Yeah. I, I don't pretend to be a student of world football and what who's available. Would I want Allegri? I don't know. Maybe he plays just as boring shit that I would hate. Like, here's what I will say. 
I think that right now, I sort of sense that the players have just kind of given up on Emory football, that they don't understand it, that they're not comfortable with it, and they don't look like they know how to play it. I think just removing, sometimes it's addition by subtraction, so maybe you just let Freddie take it the rest of the way. Now, you don't do what United did. You don't say he's a nice guy, and he managed our academy, Mm -hmm. and you know he now gets the job. No, you let him take it the rest of the way while acknowledging that Freddie's not ready to be the first team manager at Arsenal, coach at Arsenal, and we're going to conduct a proper and thorough search between now and the balance of the season, and, and Freddie will certainly be considered as part of that search and will pick the best candidate. Having said that, I, I think sometimes when players quit on a manager, and I don't mean quit like they're not trying, but when the message just stops getting through, it's over. I mean, I think you can look at Spurs even at some level and say, we know that Pochettino's a great manager, although it gives me no pleasure to say it, but maybe the players have just stopped, stopped listening to the message there. And when that happens, you have to make a change. And it almost doesn't matter who in the short term. Um, So I I don't know who the candidate should be. I know it shouldn't be Jose Mourinho. I would not support that. I don't want that. That's just me. Um, I could not cheer for that guy. No way, no how. So that's a non-starter. I've gone way over the amount of time I said this would be, but I do have to ask you one final question before we say goodbye, which is simply, and I, I hate to have to bring it up, but we have to touch on it. What is the right way through the situation with Shaka for you? I'm not asking you for any reporting unless you have some, but like there has been some reporting that they asked him to apologize. They didn't want to do it. They've offered him counseling is another bit of reporting. But at the end of the day, they they want this to go away, I'm sure. I don't think anybody wants to see Granite Shaka. Well, anybody in the club wants to see Granite Shaka frozen out. He's presumably pretty popular in the dressing room. What is the right way for this to be handled and how do you see this shape, uh, shaking out over the next couple of weeks? Um, right, yeah. So the, the, the reporting would be, it, it's a funny thing where they haven't asked him to apologise. They've told him that he's going to apologise. <laughs> and he said no. <laughs> well, but he hasn't said no. But I just don't, I, I think the view is, uh, and this is that his head's not quite in the right place to apologise yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I know that aren't, you know, I mean, I, I could go into a, on a lengthy uh, debate about Arsenal fans and mental health. Um, but I think ultimately Arsenal's priority is Granit Xhaka's mental health. And this is this has really hurt him. And it's not just about the booze uh, on, on Sunday. It's about the booze against Aston Villa. It's about the, um, what was the chant before the Atletico Madrid semi-final about Granit Xhaka? It was some, but I, I'm pretty certain it had the words fucking shite in it. Um Words to that effect, he's, he has got an awful lot of stick. A lot of it he has kind of earned for himself by not playing as well, well as he can. A lot can. of it Emery's generated by just not right. taking him out of the firing line when it's clear that, you know, maybe his time is up as a, as a regular starter. Exactly, 100%. Right. He has made, you know, his performances, Emery's inability to manage those performances have all made this worse. But, like, it has been really, really hard for him. I've... I've spoken to Xhaka, you know, in mixed zones. This isn't, I don't know Xhaka, but I've spoken to him enough times that I feel I can say he's a combative person uh, and a person that wears his heart on his sleeve and actually a person that cares really deeply for Arsenal and that is incredibly grateful to be Arsenal captain. Uh, And I think he, it means an awful lot to him. Um, And I think he, everyone just needs to take time to, to let their heads and their hearts cool down a little bit. You know, Granite will apologize because he knows what he did was wrong. Like, I don't think it, I don't think it should matter whether that apology comes today in his program notes, whenever, as long as he's saying the right things and we know he really understands what he's done wrong. And 
how he's going to make this up to fans. I think eventually he's going to have to give up the captaincy because I don't believe you can be club captain and tell your fans to fuck off. Um, and I don't believe that. I, would, I never thought I'd have to say that. Um, I think he can still, though, be a player for Arsenal. I think maybe actually, in a way, this might be the best thing for him, um, that it's all just a bit out in the open. I, I remember I went back to look at what happened with Emmanuel Abue, and it was his next home game where he was getting cheered to the rafters. Yeah. And Arsenal fans are... For the most part, you know, especially the ones that go, you know, the ones that go to the games, the ones online, the ones in America, the ones in Asia, the ones in the UK, they're a really nice bunch of people. And, you know, they, I think a lot of them will look back and go, God, we really regret that. We regret the way we uh, treated Xhaka there. Uh, And he really regrets how he responded. Uh, And maybe in a while he'll, he'll come back and, and we'll all think a lot, lot better of him. Also, maybe it means we don't have he doesn't have to play week in, week out and be that sort of physical on pitch embodiment of everything that's wrong with Unai Emery's football. He doesn't have to play week in, week out. I think that would be for the best. But like right now, I can't overemphasize how important it is that like he just get to focus on his mental health. It's tough, man. I, I mean, you know. I wrote some stuff on Twitter about my own mental health and that was from, you know, a a few dozen people over the past few days being horrible. Like I can't imagine what it must be like to have tens of thousands of people booing you. And, you know, what Xhaka did was wrong and he should not do it and he has to be able to control himself. But like, let's be honest, I I think we'd all probably do what Xhaka did. doesn't make it right, but I think everyone's just got to come from a place of understanding. He, it, it will, it, it will, he will apologize. It will resolve itself. He probably won't keep the captaincy, but like, I think he'll try and make it up to Arsenal fans. And I think that's all that Arsenal fans can ask for. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, it's 50,000 people telling you, you suck at what you do for a living. Yeah. It's got to hurt. It's got to hurt. Like- and I mean, I think honestly, you know, while everybody goes on and on about, terrible abuse on social media and people saying shit about your mom or your sister on social media. That's trivial bullshit because at the end of the day, you can turn your mentions off. Like you can go private with your account. I'm not saying you should have to, but you can silence those people from your existence. And those people are just being assholes. And you can, you know, you know why I think this is harder in a way, James, if someone says to me on Twitter, I hope you effing die, you're scum. And then uses a racial epithet. I can, see them as a monster and ignore them and be like, that person's going to hell. Mm. If someone comes into my mentions and is like, your podcast is terrible and you're bad at it and your voice sucks and your opinions are bad. Like that's more hurtful in a way, right? Because it's, it's someone who consumes my content and hates it and came to tell me about it. And when you play football for a living and your own fans think you're so bad at it, they boo you. That's extremely painful. The only caveat I'd give to that is, I don't think the booing was about his performance. I think the booing was about his response to the jeering, which the cheering, which is another issue. But let's leave it there. The one thing I will say is this is where you just feel a good PR manager can make a huge difference because if he if he just writes some meal, even a three line apology, when times are tough, we all have to stick together. What I did was wrong, but I hope we can come together as fans. And then you don't start him against Wolves, and you hope you get lucky and you have a lead in the 80th minute and you can sub him on, and the crowd goes crazy cheering for him. I guarantee you that's what they would do because there'd be a sense of shame about how he was treated, and it would hold him back to our bosom and make him feel good again. And But but if we don't get that done, it's going to fester. And, you know, 
things that fester tend not to be good. Festering in general, not a good word. I think we should leave it there. James, that's uh, that's plenty, and I've I've held you way too long. Paul is still coming up, uh, and and that chat is almost worth listening to. But uh, you definitely want to follow James uh, at James Benj on Twitter and read him at football.london and just generally seek him out as a person to discuss the Arsenal with because he is lovely. James, thank you. Thank you. And now I'm going to do the least classy thing possible while James is uh, still on the pod, which is promote another website that you have to pay to read stuff on. But it's such a good website, James, so I'm just going to do it quickly. Uh, it's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. We'll run a little ad for that, and then we'll come back with Paul. Stay with us. Okay, it's time to tell you about The Athletic, the new home of football writing and a world-class sports website. You can get The Athletic for half off and a month trial right now if you go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. You'll help the pod, and of course you'll help The Athletic too, but that's a good thing because you will be at the new home of football getting world-class writing and the best coverage of Arsenal from writers like Amy Lawrence, whom we love, has been on the pod, David Ornstein, James McNicholas, also known as Gunnerblog, myself, but don't let that hold you back. The coverage of sports is unrivaled, and there's no advertising to get in the way, no clickbait. They're not chasing ad revenue. They're just trying to write great in-depth articles. They've broken some incredible news. They've had some incredible interviews. Loved the article about the Eddie and Ketty load to Leeds and how that came about. So there's a lot to like there. Try it out. It's a month free. And then if you stick with it, it's $2.50 a month. That's it. So you can go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision and try it now. See what all the buzz is about. Go sign up now. Theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. Okay, now that that's out of the way, we get to talk a little football. Imagine that. And, uh, you know, we didn't really talk much about the Palace game after the Palace game because of uh, Shackagate and all that good stuff. Um, But there's definitely plenty of football to talk about after this game, which is a nice surprise. Um, You know, and and something that I think makes a nice change. So here to talk the football with me uh, is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Paz. Hello, Paz. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. Yeah, I mean... This is a meaty game to get into from an actual footballing standpoint, and it, it would be easy to fall into narratives, um, you know, about Ozil, about Shaka, about Torreira. That's some stuff that I think that's a bridge we can cross. But let's just sort of start with him picking the team and choosing to include Ozil. And I, I mean, again, we'll get into the footballing side of it, but I'm curious to get your take on his decision to reintroduce him here. And if you can sort of parse his words and parse events and and try to make out why you think this was the moment where he was reintroduced. Um, I think there's obviously a bit of heat there generally. I mean, if Ozil plays in this game, there's no reason he couldn't play in Europa League games recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just the additional bit of extra heat uh, that maybe he's feeling. It's kind of a... Uh, showing a bit more flexibility because this isn't the time to... You, you can go two ways in tough times. You can just erect a steel wall and, and show no flexibility. Or maybe you can decide uh, there are a number of hills you're not planning to die on over the next few weeks. He's He's got bigger fish to fry. And uh, we went to Anfield. It's going mm. to be a fairly open game that would suit Ozil. There's nothing on the line in reality. Um, but there's a little on the line because he's taken posi- – it feels like we had taken positions uh, as a manager, as a club, uh, in terms of the, the, the hierarchy and Ozil's future and then kind of this. So I, I guess you can have shades though. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pyramid of decisions being made here and this is the by far the least – 
um, valued or significant competition we're in. So if you're not going to play them here, here, then you're really never going to play them anywhere. So maybe, maybe they kind of have to play him here or they're just basically making a statement they'll never play him. I guess. I mean, I sort of felt that way, to be fair, about Vittoria home. You know, especially sure, sure, coming sure. off a, a, an international break where Emery had pretty clearly agreed with Ozil's comments to The Athletic that he was training hard and he was improving, but maybe he needed to improve even further to win that place back. I don't know. We, we're never, yeah, I think, I, I, I yeah, think it's a sh- just a shade down the pyramid. I mean, if he doesn't, literally, if he doesn't play this game, you could say he's never going to play any games. But but I agree. I, I, there wasn't much in it with Vittoria, but it was at least in Emery's mind, uh, a, a a group game for the, his favorite competition on the planet, blah, blah, blah. Well, so here's the thing. Look, <clears throat> the question of whether Ozil is a 350,000-pound sup- a week superstar can be set aside. I think at this point, that ship has sailed. That's not where he is in his career. And the deficiencies he has in, in his game notwithstanding, I think this game showed for me that he still has qualities in his game, qualities that... Uh, can be useful to us, specifically doing things where we've struggled, connecting the midfield to the attack, finding space between the lines, and delivering clever balls that unlock space in behind the defense, not just out wide, but but in central areas. So we went with the four four two again, and, and you know it does feel very Emery that every week or two or you know month there is a new system. You know we've we've done. Four two three one three four three last season. Four diamond two this season. We went with the four three three with the flat three midfield, and and then four four two at the weekend and again in this game. But Ozil sort of <clears throat> stitched it together in a way that it hasn't been stitched. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on on the performance that he gave and and whether you see him solving a problem in this game that has has been one for us up to this point. Yeah. Look, I um. I I go both ways on Ozil, whatever that means. Well, Um, (laughs) in all the ways that that's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I I have sympathy for the manager in some senses, um, or for any manager, any new manager coming into the team. But we're not going to get too caught up in the politics and the the whole Ozil story. It's been done many times. People know know the the basis of that discussion where no matter what side you fall on it uh, mm. uh, i see ozil as a real trap for all but the most uh, svengali like managers um i i can see the trap that he he pulls you into of of do you build around him or do you so here we are in this game and you know he just shines and he reminds you of everything we've been missing um and you see a guy who, as you get into the final third, has his head up and is taking the play and has a like a chess grandmaster, can see the moves. And he goes one way, kind of shakes the defense around a little bit, uh, opens up some lines, doesn't like those lines. So he does. He kind of flicks it onto his left and brings it a little bit infield to open up some other angles. And you watch this in play. I mean, we, we've seen it for years now, but. Sometimes, I guess in the past, I've taken it for granted because nobody else can do that at the moment. That's what I was struck by in this game with Ozil. Just the way he and you don't. uh, The problem is you don't always get that right. If you always got that in every game, it'd be a no brainer. But it's not what you get. But in this game, 
you saw it in play. He'd be over on the right. He'd knock it onto his left foot. He'd look at options. He'd he'd reject those options, uh, bring it back towards the touchline and the players up there, make a better angle, put a pass through, patiently work at it or suddenly accelerate the play. And it was just fucking delicious. And you think, Jesus, I wish I had this every week, every game. But I'm not sure that's that's really what's on offer to us. But it felt like in this game it was, and it certainly was for this game. Yeah, and, and so, so a couple things. Well, it, first of all, I mean, obviously, the irony of his lovely touch to Saka for the cross that Martinelli slams home is that it's a ball recovery by Ozil and then yeah. the touch, <clears throat> which is obviously a really good thing to see. You know, I, I think there's another thing that he does, Paul, that is maybe a little more subtle, but maybe just as important for us. There were a lot of times, like, I can think of one passage of play where he got the ball in space in the right half space, sort of right wing, wanted to play an overlap, but it wasn't on, looked for a run in behind, but it wasn't on, and what does he do? He shifts feet, carries it a little centrally, takes it around a defender and carries it more centrally, holds on to it, nothing opens up, and I think he winds up giving it to to Torreira in midfield and sort of recycling possession, but no one does that for us. You know what I mean? No. That That ability to get your foot on the ball and not give it away, and not make the wrong pass, and not shoot from 40 yards out, and not play a heavy overlap that goes out into touch and gives away possession. You know what I mean? Like, we've just sort of struggled at times to keep periods of possession moving. And what Ozil has is the ability to sort of decide between trying to play the killer ball, but also just keeping the ball. And so, you know, and I thought thought we saw it when he was taken off, which we'll get to later, is just the extent to which we were no longer able to really get our foot on the ball and keep it. Um, Yeah. So, so that to can me, I add yeah, on yeah, please, yeah. So, uh, I think you and I had a quick chat on uh, some stats. I think it was from the Stats Bomb uh, recent conference on pl- the most press resistant players on the planet. Santi Cazorla was number one, um, and so, some were so were some of our old favorite players from the pla- past. I think uh, Sesk was in there, but like Mesut Ozil was right at the top. Like they were ahead of Neymar and uh, Messi, uh, as was Mesut Ozil, right in the mix there. And in in this game you saw it, and you, when you think of some of the games we've had in recent times where we could have used this, he's just, uh, I don't, I, I knew he was always good at, at kind of holding on to the ball or being press resistant, but you also see him getting bowled over and knocked over. It's not. It, it's sometimes hard to work out how good he is. Well, he's apparently absolutely bloody exceptional. Um, and in a game in which they had twice as many passes as us, the possession you do have, you need to be able to use it and work it and find an option and make an option. And this was, I mean, this was, he, he was man of the match for me and, and was very much why it all kind of flowed and came together. Um, it, it, again, the, the deceptive part of it is if, if this was unavailable, if this was what we were being asked, did we want every week, every game, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and like, I, 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 I grant you that that's not what we get from him every week, or at least as far as we're aware. I would only yeah. say that, you know, if we want to be a team that says, you know, how did, how did Saka get into the Premier League team? He earned his way in with performances in the League Cup and and Europa League, right? And how did Chambers yeah. get to take Maitland-Niles' spot at fullback? And how did, you know, Joe Willick get spot? Like, we we seem to fully accept that good performances in these lesser competitions should be rewarded with more playing time 
in the Premier League. And I understand why that maybe goes a little more for, you know, academy kids than for Mesut Ozil. But if there is no path back for him, then I don't think that makes sense. So while you can certainly say, well, there were a lot of kids in this team, it's still Liverpool and Anfield with some fairly senior players and, and sure, some kids as well. But like, if this performance can't earn him a, a way back, then the incentives are all screwed up. And I, I don't know where you go from there. The other thing I would say is he played well against Forrest. He created the most chances of anybody playing for Arsenal this season in that game. Um, he played well, I think, in the Watford game. I'm not saying he starred. I'm not saying he was 350,000-pound a week, Mesodoso. That's gone. That's not happening. But I just think the notion that he has been so bad when he played that he's unusable is clearly wrong. Now, <clears throat> to be clear, that's not why he's not playing. We know there are reasons he's not in the team that are unrelated to what he's done on the pitch when he's played. And we only have access to so much information, and we're all going to fill in the blanks of the information we don't have according to our bias and, and our perspective and how we would prefer to see it. All I can say is I saw a player against Liverpool that addresses problems we presently have and is useful to us. And if we could use him in the Premier League, I, I think, you know, all right, fine. Don't use him at Old Trafford or at the Etihad or, you know, against Spurs at whatever NFL pitch they play at. Like, fine. But, you know, you should... You should consider using him in other games is what I take from this. Another thing that I want to take from this is the Torreira thing. And I'm working my way through the sort of narrative stuff, and we'll get into some interesting stuff like the Martinelli performance. <clears throat> Hector Bellerin, I think, deserves a mention here too. Um, Lucas Torreira scored a goal, but it wasn't from that support striker position. He was playing as one of the two central midfielders, and I thought he had a lot of influence in this game too. I mean, he and Ozil, for me, were the story of the first half in terms of the influence, if not you know Martinelli being the story from the, from the standpoint of the goals. He was winning fouls. He was, again, helping us keep possession, helping us, you know, not get cut apart and picking his spots to get forward and, in fact, picked one of those spots and scored a goal. How did you feel about seeing him patrolling the midfield in a, a sort of more natural role and, and how he chose to pick his spots to get forward and drop back? Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, really enjoyed his performance. Um, and whatever you say about Liverpool's kids in the midfield, certainly, and uh, that was where the experience was. I mean, uh, for all the talk about the kids, I mean, they had Milner. Uh, okay, he was left back, but but came in field when needed to shore up things. Keita, Lalana, Oxley, Chamberlain in the in the midfield. Gomez behind that. A lot that. of talent, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Divacarigi, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he, he may not be world class, but he's a very dangerous player, especially in a, a loose open game like that. He's going to cause havoc, and he did. So, Torreira, you know, he was operating in a midfield that was uh, may, maybe not full strength for Liverpool, but that, that's some serious experience and know how. And uh, he looked really good and, and strung it all together. Um, it, it, it's almost like he couldn't quite beat his, his recent. Uh, uh, patterns of of play out of himself because he did get forward quite a lot, but maybe it was just the nature of this chaotic game. I think everybody got forward and back, uh, and everybody put in a shift. And I think there was a certain amount of catharsis going on for for the team here, just to blow off some of that emotional steam and play some actual football and get lost in the football. And um, I, I thought Torreira was great for holding it all together, going forwards and backwards. Uh, Willock, I wasn't sure about alongside him. Uh, I thought he had, I thought he was maybe very Willocky in that he's still a bit loose, a bit positionally great on the uh, ball, 
problematic yeah. off the ball, would you say? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I it's mean, hard to pick you, it out in this game. Would you pick on him for the goal, their, their first goal, the, the Mustafi own goal? I, I think if you watch it back, you're going to see some pretty rough footage of, of Willick walking. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to happen with him a bit. <clears throat> um, I think we've said that it's a kind of a little bit of a recurring pattern. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's got two key passes. He passed at 91%. He scores a beautiful goal, an absolute stunner of a goal. But, yeah. you know, off the ball, you say, you know, the way you get in a team, if you, if you want to say what was our criticism of Ganduzi last season, for example, it was not understanding where to be in space defensively, not chasing back aggressively, that sort of thing. And and I think that Willick is sort of in that same trajectory in terms of what he needs to be doing. Yeah. Uh, so this was a really good advertisement for Torreira. But the other challenge he has is not just that Chaka te- has tended to get well, not tended, always, has always started, is that when Ganduzi is on the pitch, he basically takes over. Like, he gets every touch, makes every pass, drops deep to get the ball. So even if we see Chak out for some number of games for whatever reason, um, Torreira is still going to have that tendency to get pushed forward a little bit more than the deepest-lying player uh, and maybe there's ways of making that work, but it, it does tend to keep shifting him from the guy who sits at the base and, and pulls the strings a little bit. Not that he's a visionary passer from the back, but he can He is a te- he, he should be if he gets into a rhythm, a good tempo passer who moves along and and maybe picks the short to medium balls very well and gets his ticking at a quicker pace. And while I love Ganduzi, the problem is. He gets that ball, he never wants to let it go, or he wants to play the big pass, or he wants to dribble past. And that's a very different style of play that means Torreira is just some other midfield over to the right of him who may or may not get uh, receive the ball from him. So there's still issues there beyond the Chaka question, I think, for Torreira. Yeah, <clears throat> the interesting thing, and I think it goes back to what we talked about in terms of what does Mesut Ozil do for the team? What does Lucas Torreira in that in that midfield role do for the team? Okay, so if you look at our game against Palace, the player who made the most passes in our game against Palace was Socrates, okay? If you look at our game against Vitoria, the player who made the most passes was Mustafi. If you look at this game, in 60, what was it, 64 minutes, Mesut Ozil made the most passes, and he passed at 94.4%, by far the highest of anyone on the pitch. So you talk, and by the way, Lucas Torreira, in 71 minutes, played the second most passes in the team, uh, other than Martinez. Um, and he passed at 84.4%. You know, not quite that good, but but still, you know, a, a nice high completion percentage. I think what it shows with Ozil is you're, you're making more of your passes from more hurtful zones at a much higher rate of completion than anybody else in the team. Your your team is flowing through your team is flowing through the the part of the pitch that you want it to be and the type of player that you want it to be. And that is that is really exciting. So let's move on uh to, to some of the other parts of this analysis that I think are interesting. And I I do think that Gabriel Martinelli is is a player that looks primed to be a star. He now has seven goals. Now, admittedly, the competition he's done that against may be questionable, but I think the interesting question here, Paul, is there is a temptation to say you have to get this guy into the Premier League squad, right? Mm. I don't think anyone would say he should be playing ahead of Aubameyang or Lacazette. I mean, maybe someone is, but I, I don't think so. 
I would be inclined to keep him playing cup games as a center forward rather than trying to force him into the Premier League team as a winger because he really looks like maybe there's something there for him as a center forward in terms of the way he he arrives in the box, in positions to score, his understanding of that, his ability to sort of drive right through the center of the pitch, make interesting runs in behind. What's your take on on him as a center forward versus a winger and the, the benefit of just sort of letting him develop in that role? Well, I guess don't change your winning formula. So uh, my first instinct would be keep doing what we're doing. So that's in support of your point. The one thing that might give me pause for doubt is if we were to go under this manager or any future manager to a more aggressive pressing style. Because holy shit, that guy uh, is like, he's a lunatic, absolute lunatic. Might for be a bit of a red card waiting to happen too, by the way. <laughs> he, like, yeah. he likes to dive in. <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a, you can see he came from the seventh division of Brazil and fought fought his way up using nothing but his teeth. I mean, he's just, he's a bad bastard. Uh, he's mean. He's, I love him. Don't get me wrong. He's mean. He's aggressive uh, uh, and not, not necessarily illegally. So, but uh, uh, I don't think he'll be too shy to pushing the boundaries. Um, he's just his energy level, his commitment, the guy's on a mission. So if you were looking for three players to, to press the BJs out of somebody's back line, I could see why you might get him into a Premier League game or at least off the bench with 25 minutes to go. I think he, in that particular department, he has a unique skill that almost nobody else in our front three has. But to your point, we have other good players at the moment and, and in general, don't keep, don't mess with the winning formula. I mean, he's coming along beautifully. Don't, don't screw that up for him. Yeah, um, I have to agree with that. And I, it is really exciting because developing a striker it can be a game changer for any team. Um, you know, I said it on another pod, I'm not sure which one it was, but basically it might have been the halftime show actually. Like, look at what Spurs were able to do with with Kane coming through their academy and not having to buy a striker and having a golden boot caliber striker that came through the academy. They were able to win, well, well nothing. Fuck all. Some total of fuck all. But, you know, they did move yeah. up from yeah. where they were, which is nowhere, uh, to be still pretty much nowhere. But you get my and point. The, I, you can solve yeah, a lot of squad issues. And this is a guy who can play three positions mm -hmm. and can give you something something of what Sam does. You know, he's probably the fo footballistically the better comparison uh, at Spurs. Or you look at what Firmino does in terms of providing work rate. Maybe Martinella doesn't, doesn't have all of the the clever craft and supportive play of Firmino because early days, you, you can't be everything to everybody, but maybe maybe he can provide a good chunk of that for us uh, as he develops. But that's going to take some developing as well, that kind of in-game intelligence to, to set other people off. But he, you know, he, he looks like a guy who can play anywhere across the front line. Um, and he's just, his attitude is just brilliant. Yeah, it, it it is awesome, and I mean, it, it has Speed, to be said. Power. I mean, he's pretty good build for an eighteen-year-old. Uh, obviously, very comfortable on the head with the head, which we don't really have from anybody else in our front line. Yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, if he had been a little better with his head at the end of the first half, he would have had another goal. Sure, <laughs> that he'd probably want uh, that one back. The way he took his penalty was awesome, by the way. It was. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Tierney's 
crossing which we are yet to fully enjoy this season. I mean, he's going to be looking for somebody to get his head on the ball from time to time. Well, so, <clears throat> Speaking of fullbacks, let, let's talk Hector Bellerin for a minute. I, yeah. I thought this was the most Bellerin-y game for Hector Bellerin since he's been back. He was at both ends of the pitch. He was making those late last-ditch tackles with a burst that, that we hadn't seen from him. He was getting into good positions uh, in the final third to deliver crosses and cutbacks. I, I think this was the clearest sign that we are closing in on on Hector Bellerin being back. Uh, I realize it's still a long road, but for you, was this a really reassuring performance from a player who had looked pretty rusty previously? Yeah. Um, was it, I think... It, what game did he play on recently? The Victoria game. Mm-hmm. The Victoria game, was it? Yeah. Um, I, I thought he was very good in that. He had but, a really good cutback, right? Who was it to? Or, yeah. where, was it, oh, it was Martinelli who hit, struck it straight at the keeper, right? In that yeah. game, rounded a guy, yeah. got to the, the byline and, and cut it back. Yeah, so you could definitely see the signs of him uh, becoming the a, a much more attacking and confident player. And in this one, uh, I mean, the captain's armband... He really leaned into that, and it was great to see. It was great for him. I think it was great for the team. Kind of again, part of the catharsis, a kind of a, a kind of a, a fresh one evening off from all your troubles. And uh, yeah, he was great in this game, getting back and forward. Uh, admittedly, I guess he was facing Milner, um, uh, who I have a lot of time for. But you know that that's a battleground that Bellerin's going to be feeling comfortable on. Um, and I think he really helped connect the, the the different areas of the pitch. And despite the fact that they had uh, maybe twice the possession we did and we were sitting back quite a lot, actually almost all of Bellerin's touches are midfield and attacking. So he got forward and he made shit happen. So it, that was great to see. And if we can get him and, and uh, Tierney firing uh, in the first team, <clears throat> then we'll finally get to see... Emery's uh, team and Emery's lineup and Emery's style of play shortly after he left. It's funny because there are a lot of shades in this game for me of another sort of um, important Emery game at Arsenal, which is his second game in charge. And that's the one at Stamford Bridge in the league where we went into halftime level after looking really good going forward, sat in our shell and got beat late, I think by an Alonzo winner, um, 3-2. Because we looked pretty frail defensively for a lot of the first half, but we looked like we could hurt them every time we got forward, and and we got forward quite a bit. Um, Obviously, after the substitutions, that changed. And if you look at XG, this this is the most XG we've had in any match in two years. Um, It was astonishing. And yet, after the, the last goal we scored, which is right after Ozil comes off, we created basically nothing the rest of the way for you know, more than 20 minutes. So in, in 65-ish minutes, we had our highest XG in two years and then basically nothing. So uh, we'll come to that in a second, but you can't have a 5-5 game without conceding, and I think we were victims of some really good finishing, some diving, some not great decisions, although we did get a decision to go our way. I mean, it's so funny, ironically, the game without VAR probably wind up liking more than the games with VAR. But I think both Martinez and Holding give me gave me some issues in this game. I thought Holding did some of his best jobs, uh, best job on the ball, actually, stepping around players and, and distributing and starting attacks. But he he lost his man quite a bit. He looked like he was a little confused where to be at times, and, and I don't think Martinez helped anybody either with uh, some of his, his keeping. I, I think he could have done better with a few of those. So 
defensively, I'm going to put Mustafi aside because I think he's unlucky on the own goal. I think he's been mostly good when he's been asked to play, and I don't think anybody believes he is an important part of the team going forward. So I think analyzing him is somewhat pointless and sort of kicking a guy when he's down, it's just not needed. Um, but holding in Martinez, you know, are, are players that we are having a look at. And I thought both of them maybe were weak in this game. Did you agree? Yeah, that seemed to be the general take I saw out on the Twitters too. Um, I mean, I don't know if you can say Martinez definitely, definitively should have stopped any of those goals, but I think... What's well, the, the one second- that hits his hand? Yeah, and it's the one too yeah, he where he's, a, he's leaning the wrong way and he doesn't get a strong hand coming back the other way. That was the one that bothered me. Yeah, yeah, uh, there were a couple that bothered me. Uh, um, they're not out and out. Oh God, you you can't let those in. There's but no howler. A, there's no howlers. Yeah, there's no howler. But uh, I did th- expect more from Martinez because he's been very. You know, he's he's shone every time. Um, uh, you could also say he went basically wrong on almost every penalty too, and he, yeah, he, he faced what six of them. Yeah. <laughs> so he got five wrong. By the way, but- I'm just going to stop because I have to get in the pod before I forget. Kick Arse on on Twitter, who who is one of the funnier Arsenal Twitter accounts, had the great line. I think he said, "Only Arsenal could be winning five four and lose five <laughs> four. <laughs> that was great because you know yeah. we lost five four penalties. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it. The the interesting thing about this game was how many people who have nothing to do with Arsenal or Liverpool loved this game. Um, uh, maybe mostly through the eyes of journalists. You know, Miguel Delaney was pissed he wasn't at this game. He was stuck at the United game. But you saw a lot of that out there of of people saying, this is just bloody great fun. This is what it's all about. And you see, uh, you know, Klopp's comments. I know it's it's maybe a little... Uh, self-serving and hey they won so why wouldn't you but you just saw in this game like it was a bit more serious for Emery and maybe a bit more serious for Arsenal and blah 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 but mostly this is what football it it was one of those days where I just decided look I'm going hopefully it's a good game Uh, I don't really care I just I just want to enjoy it and and the you know everybody the players themselves seem to latch on to that I mean they were they were disappointed, but still, you could see how up they were at the end of this. This was a rollicking ride. Um, I do agree that the two players who maybe came out of this not feeling quite as good about themselves and were, I would say, subpar for themselves were Holding and Martinez. I, I don't know that you can really analyze it, though. It's not that it didn't happen and it's not of some significance. It's just how do you analyze a game like this? It was just such a cluster. But I did expect holding to be a little bit more solid. I mean, there were some unforced errors, I think, on his side in terms of how he just generally centre-backed. And Martinez had a couple of could-have-done-better-on-that-save kind of situations. And as you say, not a howler. Um, but if you get a, a fairly good hand on it, um, you you kind of think, keep that one out. But... Uh, I, I guess if it's as easy as that, if you get a fairly good hand on it, you save it. So those things are coming at you at speed. Um, and yeah, I could have done better, but 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 maybe that's not all under control of a keeper every day. Yeah, the funny thing is, I, I thought the penalties were fucking brilliant from Arsenal. I mean, Ceballos aside, yeah. which was pretty well saved to be fair, there yeah. was some pretty. It wasn't classy- a terrible penalty, but it was a little, little high and savable. A, a little yeah. too in. Yeah, savable was the problem. But, but, but yeah, the others were really good, really impressive from some young players Eight in a pressure miles, spot. They yeah. seem to be really upset to lose this game, and it's funny because, yep. 
I really enjoyed the shit out of this game. And I have to admit, look, I never like seeing Arsenal lose anything or crash out anything, but like the last thing Arsenal needs is a long run in the in the League Cup. I don't particularly care. There's no shame going out to Liverpool at Anfield. I thought it was a brilliant game, a fun game, a game where there were some really big performances that are really encouraging that can be a way forward for Arsenal to show that we have some classy attacking players that when given a platform can really do some special things, albeit, admittedly, in a slightly different level of competition. I do want to get to the substitutions, though, and especially the Ozil one. And, and I did reference the Chelsea game, and I think it's apt because we had our lowest amount of possession and our least amount of attack in the period after Ozil was removed. Admittedly, we did get the, the uh, I think it was the Joe Willock Thunderbastard yep. that, that was scored right after he was taken off. But then again, two shots in the remaining 30 minutes one of which was the, the Willock goal, almost no XG after having created our highest XG in two years uh, in, in the 65 minutes prior. So, you know, I, I'm curious. The the decision to take Ozil off, let's say it's not Ozil. Let's just say it's decision to take off attacking number 10 type player. You could say it's to rest him. You could say he's not match fight. You could say this, that, or the other. But for you, is it just Emery defaulting a little bit to the let's get more compact Let's sit a little deeper because there was a period I tweeted at one point jokingly shortly after that. If we sit, if the players sit any deeper, they can sit with the fans because we were really packed in near, near our 18 yard box. How do you distinguish between the actual player he took off and the previous they have with each other and also just the instinct to be more defensive with a lead late in the game? So I did think when he came off, it was probably because Ozil was possibly tiring. Um, and that this is his first game in a while and that there was kind of a pre-plannedness about it. And that's coincidentally what he said at the end of the day. He said that he is very likely to be included in the game, which is on Saturday. Um, and he took him off. I, I think what's the maybe the more debatable side of it was who he brought on for him, because as you said, this was our, uh, our the guy who was stitching together the attack. So the natural replacement for him would have been Sabayas, you would say. Uh, but he brought on Ganduzi. So you had one more person who's going to sit a little deeper uh, and provide a bit more control, whereas Sabayas is going to, you know, mess things up and well, there, there's the another point. and can, take can, risks. Can I make a point yeah. too? There, there's a knock-on effect because Oza was playing nominally as the second striker in a 4-4-2. Yeah. So he took that guy off and moved Willick into that role. And Willick is yeah. never going to have the kind of possession or control that Ozil gives you. So forgetting who you're swapping, you're basically bringing in a midfielder, taking off an attacking third player and moving a midfielder into that role where he's not as comfortable. So you are, by definition, going to have less ability to keep and possess the ball in advanced areas, if that if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So... You know, I I can give him the taking Ozil off thing on 65. I mean, if we're not going to take the game too seriously, and if we buy into Wolves being uh, what this is all about, and he's he actually has kind of, there's a bit of a detente between him and Ozil, and he's kind of back in the plans in the short term, and they're trying to find a way forward. I, I'd take that as a result out of this game. If We'll know a little bit more after the weekend if he's part of the plans and if he gets used. Um, so I can I can live with that part of it. It did change the game. Uh, we, as you said, two shots after that. One of them was Willock uh, taking it himself from the halfway and and then hitting the thunder bastard shot, which was 
so wheat. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, the the other side of that substitution is who we brought on and what we did from there on because we basically did an Emery and kind of conceded maybe not the whole second half, but a good chunk of the second half and said, bring it on, show us what you've got. And unfortunately, they kind of did. What do you think about the Torreira substitution? Again, I mean, it, it is hard for me to separate who was subbed off from the way they have been sort of used, and I guess the more charged language would be treated this season. But it's Torreira and Ozil, who are clearly not his favorites, who wind up coming off, and the game does change after that. So, I mean, again, I, I, I'm I, not trying to find reasons to, to get on Emery, but these, these are changes he made in a game where he had a lead, in a game where the team was attacking quite beautifully and seemed to be able to trouble Liverpool almost at will. And these changes change the pattern of play and ultimately are, in some respect, I mean, if you're going to get credit for bringing on substitutions that win you the game, you have to take some criticism if your substitutions do the opposite. So what's your take on the, the Torreira swap and the fact that, you know, again, much like Ozil, he, he just seems to be a player who, in Emery's eyes, can't can't play a full 90 and especially not in his preferred position. I think that's generally true. I think we're all generally frustrated about how those two players are used. But you could see the same logic in pulling Torreira off at that time in this game. Uh, the bigger game is Wolves at the weekend uh, on Saturday. And he, he did, I don't know how he'll use Torreira, but he's certainly going to be on the bench, if not on the pitch. Can, can and, I stop you for one second, just real quick, yeah. just to make a because Because I think you raised a really important point. This is where we don't have the benefit. You know, you can always say, oh, well, post hoc analysis isn't smart and hindsight. But here's where we kind of almost need hindsight, because, Paul, you made a really important point. If Ozil and Torreira start on Saturday, I would have a totally different view of the substitutions in the Liverpool. You know what I mean? If 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 it proves true that he took them off with an eye towards protecting the team he wants to play in the Premier League, I hold my hands up and say, genius, I support that, right? So we almost need to know that to, to be able to then know retrospectively how we feel about this substitution. Does that make sense? It does, but let's disagree a little bit because I also think that even if he's planning to bring them off the bench, he he wants them fresh and energetic and enthused, not a little bit jaded. So um, that's why it's a bit like XG. You can't really measure anything against across one game. And similarly with narrative, you need a you need a run of games. And we the thing is we ha- we have that run of games, but that's previous history. We're hoping to see a change in pattern, relationships, behavior where Ozil now starts getting used. So, but we're going to have a one-game sample with Wolves. Um, you know, I tend to give the manager credit, uh, whether it's earned or not, for for uh, a positive intention. Uh, and I'll do that again this time, which is if he has them on the bench and hopefully uses them, uh, I'll understand his logic here. But I understand he may not have g- uh, g- garnered this credit from you. Yeah, well, I, I mean... It's hard for me because I I think the subs were not good subs for the game, but if it proves that they were done for the purposes of the game coming up, that obviously would change my opinion. You know what I mean? So I I don't want people to come back to me and say, oh, see, you were a jerk. You said there were bad subs he played. I, I will fully acknowledge if they play on Saturday, then the subs make complete sense to me. If they don't, I think the subs in part lost us the game. And so let's wrap with this. I mean, look, we lose, we crash out, fine, whatever. I I can't get too exercised about that. Some people can. 
I would much rather have every game be 5-5 than see what we saw against Sheffield United or see what we saw against Palace. I, I, I just enjoyed the shit out of this. And to me, maybe it's because of all those years of Arsene Wenger, a 5-5 feels like Arsenal a hell of a lot more than, you know, than some of what we've been watching. I guess what you see in this game is Arsenal really go for it and they lean into their attacking philosophy and DNA and they score five goals and they have Liverpool pegged back and then they sit in a shell and they concede a couple more and they they lose in, on penalties. Putting the circumstance aside, could you call this a bit of a microcosm of the problem with the Emery era? Just the tension between really being willing to take the reins off of the attack and let it go against the, the impulse to try to be safe and try to be secure with a team that just is not comfortable playing without the ball, is not comfortable seating possession and sitting deeper. I mean, can, can Emery finally maybe take lessons from this, or do you think the only lesson he'll see is, see, I tried to attack and I got burned? Uh, he could take lessons from it. It was the most, in some ways, in a 5-5 game, it was the most Emery of games because we kept doing the same thing. We'd go ahead and seed uh, the initiative, go ahead and seed the initiative. And I mean, they had... You know, this was Anfield away and uh, it was their kids, but they still had twice the possession, twice the passing we did. Um, you know, we had that unusual structure of a 4-4-2 and we, we often saw ourselves sitting right back with two banks of. Um, and it was just very emery to keep, to, to not go for 90 minutes of, of going at them. And yet it was a, still managed to incorporate that in a 5-5 game. So it was kind of, Something for everybody. Football excitement, but those who love Emery's style got still got to see plenty of it here. So, yeah, it's a bit of a microcosm, but but from a whole uh, whole other pair of glasses. Five five is if, if you're going to watch Emery style football, five five is the way to go. Yeah, look, it hasn't been a fun season. This was a fun game. All right, the outcome sucked, but. I enjoyed watching it, and there were still things that made me want to pull my hair out. With this Arsenal team, I suspect that will always be the case, but under Emery, I, I cannot remember having this kind of fun watching the team very often. So, you know, I guess that's a step forward. We'll see what happens with Wolves. I mean, I am very curious to see where he goes from here. Do we see the same kind of football and the same kind of approach and the same kind of lineups? Is there an aha moment where he just says, you know, I like seeing a score five, and if that means we concede five, then let's be that team. Let's see, but between now and then, we'll see. Clive and I are going to do a first-half rewatch tomorrow for patrons, so that should be really, really interesting because we'll get to really focus in on what Ozil did and Torreira in his space and um, how we scored the goals and created them and how that's different from how we've been playing. I'm really looking forward to that. But until next time, Paul's on Twitter, uh, at Pause in My Pants. Thanks, Paz. Woo-hoo. My name's Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. we got a pretty fun uh, promotional-type thing coming up. Uh, in November, which we'll tell you about. So we are recording on Halloween, so I hope you have a spooktacular Halloween. Uh, I'll be walking around with a little tiny unicorn around my neighborhood in a few hours, in case anybody's curious. And with that having been said, we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Wolves nil. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.